much a divided heart, Israel's divided afterwards. The northern ten are calling themselves Israel. The southern two, which is Judah and Benjamin, by the way, are calling themselves Judah and the renegade Levites who want to be in Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom of Israel does not have a single godly king. They have 19 kings, and every one of them is just wicked and horrible. Now, some are much more openly wicked than others. But the most wicked king we've had so far was a guy named Ahab or Ahab. And God said, with all the nasty things that he did, as if it was a small thing, the seventh king on this side, if it was a small thing for all the nasty things he did, he also married that girl Jezebel. And Jezebel was a gateway to a thousand things, but the mostly she was a gateway to idolatry like Israel had never known before this. Now, Israel had left Egypt, I remind you, and they had left over 400 years ago. And when they did, they still took a little bit of Egypt with them. And what they kind of tried to do is they kind of tried to make God more tangible, more touchable. You could feel him and smell him. So giving the benefit of the doubt, when Israel separates, the southern kingdom has Jerusalem. That's the religious capital. The north doesn't. So they're like, the king at that time, who, note this, happens to be the commander of Solomon's army. The commander takes over the northern tribes. He goes, well, three times a year these guys have to go to a feast down in Jerusalem. And you know what's going to happen. They're going to go down to a feast. They're going to go, why in the world am I up north? And they're going to kill me. So to preserve his own life, even though God said, if you obey me, I'll establish you. So he could have gone by faith, but instead he went by fear. And any of us can do that. God gives a promise and he goes, I need you to trust me. It doesn't have to make sense, but I need you to trust me. I'm going to work this out. Or you can act out of fear, but you probably know by now, when you act out of fear, you make really dumb choices. You know, And um, survival is an extremely selfless, or selfish mindset to get in, because the whole thing is about surviving. Well, so he puts two gold cows up, one in the south in Bethel, which in essence would be en route to Jerusalem, would be the idea. And then all the way up in the north, the northern area of Dan, which is the northernmost part of Israel, puts another one. And he goes, look, at first of all, it's super convenient for you to do this compared to running down to Jerusalem. Second, it's something you can touch and you can feel and you can look at. And Look, it's a big gold cow. And to this day, there is still the remains of the altar until Dan. We were there uh, years ago. Now, here's the point in it. And this is why I did this, not for you, I did this for me. Because when I read the word and I'm like, what the heck? What, who are we talking about again? If you have 19 kings on this side and you have 20 kings on this side, that's 39 kings to keep track of. It's an awful lot. To, but let's just make it worse. There are two Achatias, there are two Yehorams, and now you're like, okay, and what the problem is, one's on one side and one's on the other. So which one are we talking about again now? Does that make sense? So let me kind of point out how this rolls. For This is just how my crazy little mind works. So it starts with that guy... Yeroboam, do you see him right there? He has a couple sons. Well, he has this son, as you can see here, named Nadav. That's what the arrow, the arrow comes down. If it's a straight arrow, what that means is he's just his son. Notice there's an M beside it. That means he was murdered by this guy, Baasha, <laughs> who, notice, has a son. Arrow down to Elab. Do you see that? Who was murdered by this guy, Zimri. Do you see that? And then do you see the letter S? Does anyone want to guess what S stands for? Suicide. suicide. Wow. Commit suicide. Notice how long, and by the way, the number beside it is how long they reign. He reigns a week. And kills himself. And when he kills himself, guess who takes over? His commander, who happens to be named Amri, who has his son named Ahab. Do you see that? Who, by the way, marries Jezebel. And they have a daughter named Atalia. And they have a son named Yoram, who has a son ultimately named... Well, actually, no, that's not true. He's murdered by Yahoo. Do you see that? 
Did you get to follow that? Yeah. So this is what it looks like. It actually sounds a lot like, at one time, the history of England. So there was a guy who had a son who was murdered by a guy who had a son who was murdered by another guy who committed suicide after a week, who was replaced then by a commander who had a son who married this horrible gal who had a daughter and a son who both will wind up reigning. But the son, by the way, will be murdered by another guy who, by the way, notice, has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who's murdered by another guy, who was murdered by another guy, who has a son who's murdered by another guy, who's murdered by the last guy, who then gets into it. Did you kind of, and there is the history of Israel. It is nuts, isn't it? Now, let's go to the west side, or the left side for a moment. I should say it's the south side. Because, yo, man, I'm, I'm from the south side. Judah. This is what it looks like. Now, I want to remind you, in the north, not a godly king among them. Nineteen of them, not a godly king among them. That is really important. Uh, so, Solomon has a son. His name is Rehoboam. How long does he reign, according to this? Seventeen years. He has a son named Ahia. By the way, how long does he reign? Yeah. Then he has a son named Asa. Why is he high-lit? The highlit ones are actually the most godly kings. Fair enough. So Asa is a godly king. He has a son whose name is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, Asa by the way means healer. Jehoshaphat means God judges. He reigns for 25 years, has a son named Jehoram. By the way, Jehoram and Yoram are the same name. We throw that hoe in there sometimes because we're rapping. And we're going, hey, ho, Yoram, Yahoram. It's the same name. Anyway, they actually would say Yeshua and Yehoshua is the same name. For what it's worth. One question. Yes. The guys who aren't highlighted, like his son, he's not a good king then. Which one? You know, after Yehoshaphat. That's that. Right. Yoram is actually, and we're going to talk about, that's where we're at right now in history. Yoram. But it gets even better. Here is the problem at all of this. And this is the part where it's hard for me to draw more lines just to make it more confusing. But can you see Jehoshaphat on the, on the left side? Can you see Ahab, who happens to be basically even line, on the right side? They are reigning at the same time. And here is where the problem is. is the godly king of the south gets into a unity agreement with the king of the north. The king of the south is actually one of the most godly. Notice he's highlit. But the king of the north is about as bad as it gets. He is nasty. What is the product? How do they do that? Well, here's how they do that. Jehoshaphat has a son. What's Jehoshaphat's son's name, according to this? Jehoram, can you find that? Ahab has a daughter. What's her name? Yeah, or, um, no, that's the boy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Atalia. They have them marry each other. Now, Atalia is the daughter of whom? Jezebel. Do you see that on the right side? Mm-hmm. And we know who Jezebel is. She'd be nasty. We'll be talking about her next week, God willing. This week, we're going to deal a little bit with Jehoram on the left. So when they marry each other, he's marrying Jezebel's daughter, and she is a chip off the old block. I mean, think of Jezebel as like Cruella de Vil. And then, so Atalia is basically Cruella, Cruella de Vil Jr. is kind of the idea. Does that make sense? Now, that kind of puts us where we're at at the moment. So I'm kind of... This comes in handy, doesn't it? Can you imagine if I tried to say you that without you looking at anything? Drool would be falling off of your faces right now. If you remember last week, we talked about a woman. Remember a godly woman who uh, had helped house Elisha? Who left because Elisha said leave for seven years. And then after those seven years, you know, and then she came back what we saw in the simplest sense is we saw the blessing of an obedient woman. Now what we're going to see is the power of a nasty one. And, and this is going to be really important. So I'm going to start with this. 
and then we're going to go right to prayer. Like always, please don't just believe me. But hear me, well, we'll pray, and I just should, I should pray before I launch into any form of tiring, although I can't help it. Lord, please bless this time and make this perfect time, please. Minister right where we need to be, please. Show us what you want to do in all our lives. And I pray, God, that we would learn what we need to learn tonight. That our ears would be open and our hearts would be open to hear you and know you and love you. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit, come upon me and do your work tonight. May this be perfect time. May we all be like, wow, did I need that in Jesus' name. Amen. Always please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. My daughters have been taught something from, from day one. And that is not everyone's your friend. Pick your friends. Everyone is your acquaintance, if you know them at all. Then you're acquainted with them. If you are acquainted with them, you actually know them well enough to observe them. But choose your friends wisely. We're going to find here there's a scripture for that. We'll come into it in a moment. Because the difference between an acquaintance and a friend is the power of influence. Acquaintances do not have the power of influence. You have consciously made a decision. They are not going to influence me. But a friend is someone you open your heart to to allow you to be influenced by them. Pick your friends wisely. Pick people you want to be more like. Does that make sense? But friends have levels too. I mean, there are those friends you might play football with. There are those friends you might hang out with for a little bit or might go see a movie. But then you're like, then there's those people that are like your BFFs, you know, the people that you would call at a rough time when you need a little support or encouragement or a good cry. Looking at you. Mom. Those are deeper friends. And they have a greater power of influence in your life. You will probably seek them out for counsel. But the deepest friendship you will have is with your spouse. And if it isn't, in my opinion, something's wrong. It should be your deepest because they will more than likely have the greatest access to and therefore the greatest influence on your heart. I like to tell guys, be very careful who you pursue because that gal may just wind up being your children's mother someday. And you want someone that you want your children to be like. There are certain people that you're like, if there were more of you in the world, I don't think it would be a better place. And I definitely wouldn't want those people. That's horrible, isn't it? And I wouldn't want those people in my house. And worse yet, I wouldn't want those people calling me dad and making me responsible for them. Is that, I mean, does that sound horrible? It's, I'm, just being, I'm just being real here. Just being real. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You could p if you could pick, pick someone that you're like, wow, if I had like three of you in the house, that would be way cool. That would be way cool. The reason I say that is, what we're going to find tonight is a lot of that. Now, I'm reminding you, I'm not picking on girls here. It's just the way the story's going. But I want to remind you just Clearly, the first six verses were about a godly woman and the way that God blessed her. So this wasn't just about, let's just talk about evil women are. That's not the point. But first, let's deal with Ben-Hadad. Remember that guy? That was the guy who, by the way, uh, besieged Israel twice. The first time was that whole, give me all your gold and silver and stuff. Again, gold, silver, and wives, and Ahab was like, I remember he was Ahab, that's this guy's dad. 
You know, he's like, yeah, sure, take it. Well, let me have all your stuff, too. And he's like, no, 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 no. You know, my wife, but his wife was Jezebel. So I'll grant you that. Sure, take her, but don't touch my flat screen. And, and so they get into this battle, and of course, Syria loses. But I remind you, that was ben Hadad. And then after all of that, of course, they just besieged them. Remember that? That was the donkey head and dove dung buffet, uh, for which then, of course, everything flipped like this. But now they were still in a famine. That's this guy's history. And on top of all of that, he has a chief commander who he seems to have replaced by this point, Nehaman, who was healed of leprosy from Israel. And then a band of raiders who came in, who, by the way, instead of being murdered and killed openly, were instead led into a feast. They were blessed. They were fed and sent off with goodie bags. I mean, it was pretty astounding. And this is what he has to deal with. And yet he's still, in all of this, he's always continuing to besiege and declare war on Israel. But it is strange what happens because deathbeds really do make a great persuader. And it is amazing. Stick, and I'm just going to say as we get into verse 7, stick to your guns, man. Look at you talk to someone and they're nasty at you and they're grumpy at you and they're just whatever. It is amazing how that same person, if you've been around the block a couple of times, will call you when their mom gets cancer or they get cancer because you're the only person they think might understand even though they've made fun of you for four years. And you think, what part of you actually thought? Think about that compliment. I think you must be kind enough as a human being, as a Christian, that after four years of treating you like an absolute jerk, you'd still be kind enough to care for him after that. That says quite a bit, doesn't it? It's happened on more than one occasion. You know, my um, wife's uncle, Suzanne's uncle, came to the Lord through his son, Gary who he openly said, if you say that name one more time to me, I'm going to punch you in the face. He's like, Dad, you can punch me in the face if you need, but you still need Jesus. Yep, and he said it. Anyways. And if you saw the guy, he's not the kind of guy that you'd think would be quick to rush into the fray. But Mel, Suzanne's uncle, became a Christian and a very strong one. And then died shortly thereafter, from my understanding. Verse 7. Then, after this woman had all of her land restored, remember, from the king, then Elisha went to Damascus, and actually, there are sheets here, or Bibles, in case you have that over. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, the man of God has come here. Isn't it interesting that Elisha would make a house call? And the king said to Chatel, and I remind you, Chatel is ben Hadad's commander. Did you get that? Have you heard so far what happens to commanders most of the time? They tend to become kings, if often it's the case. The king says to Chatel, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, shall I recover from this disease? It's interesting, because no matter, Elish is certainly going to have a clear opinion on this than a, than a doctor would. Here's the interesting thing. The word recover in the Hebrew is the word chayim. Try that word. Chayim. That's good. Now look at each other and go chayim. Now if you got spit on each other, you did it right. <laughs> that was the reason I had to do that. Chayim or chayim means life. You'll see a lot of people in Israel wear these uh, these necklaces, and it looks like a staple and an apostrophe. Those are two letters in the Hebrew letter. That's the chet, and that's the yad. And that is chi. That is chi. Like if you ever read it, you l'chaim. That means to life. Chaim. Chaim. Same word. In other words, what he's saying is, will I live, will this disease kill me? Will I live through this disease? Will this disease take away my life? Does that make sense? The wording here is kind of important. So, he sends his commander. King wants to know. Will this disease kill him? So Chazel went and met him, take a present with him, of every good thing from Damascus. Well, imagine this. This is the price of second up to a prophet. 
40 camel loads. And again, imagine, if you will, 40 SUVs show up. Or those vans. What do we call them? We don't call them vans. Well, we, I guess we would. Kind of like those, you know, like those Sainsbury delivery trucks. And they all just show up with stuff. And he came and he stood before him with the camel load. So you've got, you were surrounded by a convoy of goodies. Your son, ben Hadad, the king of Syria, has sent me, shall I recover from this disease? Will this disease kill me? Verse 10, Elisha said to him, now go and say to him, you shall certainly recover. In other words, the disease isn't going to kill you. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Is he telling him to lie? It's a very important question. He's actually not. This is what he's saying. What you need to tell him is the disease isn't going to kill you. But you're going to die. But you don't need to tell him that part. So what that tells me is, Elisha is aware of the fact he's going to die from something other than the disease. Does that make sense? So, then, verse 11, he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And then the man of God wept. So imagine, Adam, you show up because you're sent by Theresa May. She's sick. And you are sent to Shemar the prophet. And Shemar the prophet, and you go, hey, she's amazing. She's wondering, is this disease going to kill her? And Shemar goes, well, you can tell her the disease isn't going to kill her. But you know how there is these facial gestures and these conclusions that you make when, you, when, you, when you're done. You're done with the conversation and, you know, you, and you watch people. They're polite, but they're like, mm, okay, thank you. Right? And they're going to, the head starts to move. In other words, it's like, I'm breaking that plane for a moment. You can go now. You know? And there are some people, of course, who don't normally get that. And then what happens is it becomes almost, well, it does become humorous to watch. Right? <coughs> uh -huh. Sure. Think, yeah. Oh. Huh. You're going to fake a phone call. Oh, my, you know, my, my grandmother's dying. You know, it's like a meme, right? Well, what happens if you don't break that gaze? What if you don't break that? We're not done yet. So, will Theresa May die from this disease? Jemai goes, you can tell her disease isn't going to kill her. But he's staring at you. And you're like, is there more? <laughs> but then it gets weirder. And then he gets embarrassed. But he isn't still breaking conversation. So now it's like, in other words, he's aware that it's awkward. And then he starts to cry. And you go, what's going on, man? Right? Hathil said, why is my Lord weeping? Why are you crying? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you'll set on fire. The young men you'll kill with a sword and you'll dash their children and rip open women with child. Elisha had insight into his soul. Now you need to know this. Inside every one of us is the heart of a murderer. Inside, it's like it's, uh, inside us is unimaginable evil. It's just tempered. And by God's grace, he rips that stuff out and replaces it. Paul would say, and this is 25 years into his ministry, when he writes Romans, I know that in me nothing good dwells. That's in my flesh. Your flesh will never convert. That's why it needs to die. The difference is, he's, he knows that Hatzel, his commander, who by the way has already made a living at killing He's going to actually bear forth that fruit. He's just going to live it out. And it's going to do more than just destroy Hazel. This guy's going to rip open pregnant women and destroy their babies. I mean, it's like, imagine being able to see that insight into someone. There's a difference between a being seeing the sickness of a human soul and seeing how much of it's going to manifest. Does that make sense? 
And this is why Jesus, by the way, God knows a whole lot more than what you'll act out. He knows the very heart of it because he talks about that. He's like, look at, you may have, you may have never have committed adultery proper, but in your heart, you may never have killed anyone proper, but in your heart. And it says, man looks at the outside, but Lord looks at the heart. And it's like, this is no insult to someone. It's like, You've murdered thousands of people. You're just too much a coward to do improper. Or you're smart enough not to do it because you know... It's like you can, you can do all that in your heart and you don't go to jail for it. But it does imprison you. Could you imagine seeing the end? What would you do? The worst part is, Elisha, with all the power God's given him to do so many crazy miracles, twice as many as Eliyahu, will still... He still can't change it. So he goes, dude, I've just saw your future. And it isn't like he can beg him to stop. He knows this is what's going to happen. But it's important to note that Hazael didn't see himself that way. Notice what he says. He says, Hazael, verse 13, said, what is your servant, a dog, that he would do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you'll become king over Syria. And this is what's going to happen when you do. It's interesting because that's the end of their conversation. What's interesting to me is he doesn't fight anymore, he doesn't argue with it anymore. The moment he hears he's going to become king, that actually takes precedent over all that evil that we've spoken about. My first thought is, is there anything I can do to change that? Because what good is it to be a king if you're going to be that gross, that nasty? Does that make sense? All the benefits in the world doesn't change a nasty person into a nice one. A nasty person winning the lottery, do you know what they become? A rich, nasty person. They're still a nasty person. It doesn't change that. Jesus has to change that. Let's take a look and see how he actually becomes king. Verse 14. Then he departed from Elisha, came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha have to say to you? And he said, Oh, told me that you were going to, the disease won't kill you. He told you that you'll recover. But, verse 15, it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over his face so that he died. He suffocated the king. Oh, you look hot. Let me get you a rag. And Hotel reigned in his place. Murdered the guy. This guy became king for murdering. We could put a third one on here on Syria. Oh, yeah, that guy murdered this guy. Look at it. looks a lot like Israel, doesn't it? Does that make sense? So at this point, that's the end of Ben-Hadad. What we have instead is, from this point on, we're going to have to deal with Hatzael. And obviously, what we already know is, he's not going to be a super awesome guy, as far as Israel is concerned. Fair enough? He's going to be really nasty. So let's get into Israel now. Now in the fifth year of Yoram, the king of Ahab. Now, remember there's a Yoram on both sides. This is obviously Ahab's king. So if he's the king of, if he's Ahab's son, which side is he, Israel or Judah? Israel. It's Israel. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. And it says, now in the fifth year of Yoram, the, king, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, being king of Judah, Yehoram, the son of Yehoshaphat, began to reign as king in Judah. So you have Yoram and Yoram, or if you will, Yoram and Yehoram. Just, they do that to try to make it a little easier. So it's like Benny and Benjamin, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. Johnny and Jonathan. It's just the same name. But in it. So you got these two guys, JJ. They're certain. Yoram and Yoram. He was 32 years old when he became king. The problem is he's the king of the south. And he's the king of Jehoshaphat. I remind you, Jehoshaphat was a good king. Now, he was leap first, pray later, but he was a good king. And he did love the Lord. But just because you love the Lord does not mean you're going to have kids that do. You're not promised that. But you better raise them in his ways. He promises that what happens if that is the case. He's 32 years old when he became, 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the king of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done, because, that's what the word for means, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. 
What was the, the daughter of Ahab's name? Atalia. Remember that? How there's two, those two things that come down from Ahab. One's a girl, one's a boy. He married, so Jonah married Jezebel's daughter. Why did he walk in the ways of the king of Israel? Because his wife was Jezebel's daughter. She was cruel at DeVille Jr. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't have a list here of how he did evil. But there is another book that tells us. Second Chronicles. 2 Chronicles gives us a little bit of the detail about this guy, Yehoram. You with me so far? I'm trying to do this slowly because I don't want to lose you on these guys. We are now at Jehoshaphat, that's Judah's, Jehoshaphat's son, Yoram, who marries Ahab's daughter. And she's nasty and influences him to be nasty. Boys, if you single, it is, you know, someone's like, I just am so concerned that I'll die without having married the right guy. This is a conversation with a gal not, as of recent. And I says, it is so much better to die having not married the right guy than dying marrying the wrong one. When you marry the wrong one, you've committed yourself to it. Listen to what this gal encourages him to do. I remind you, remember, what do we know about Jezebel? Can anyone give me a little history of what she's done so far? She killed all the prophets, well, not all of them, but a whole lot of the prophets of, of God. She also did one other thing she was instrumental in. Involved land. Yeah, the vineyard. Naboth's vineyard. What happened is it was next to the king's property. And the guy and King Ahab, who by the way seems to be a bit of a wuss. And he's like, Oh, what's the problem? He's like, Hey dude, let me let me buy your property. Next to mine, vegetable garden, this would be really nice. We could go organic. And the guy's like, Why would I give you my property? This is my dad's property. This is my great grandpa's property. I can't give this up. No matter where you relocate me, it's not going to be my... It's like, you know, American Indians. Anyway, that, you know, they're like, well, why don't we give you more property? But this is... Our, our families are buried here. And so he goes home and he sulks. Like a teen. And his wife, Jezebel, walks in and goes, what's wrong with you, man? He's like, I wanted to go out for a vineyard and he wouldn't give it to me. She's like, Oye, let me handle it. So she writes a letter and says, go have a big feast around and invite Nabod like he's a, a favorite guest. Hey, just because you're the favorite guest, be careful. A few times this happens in Scripture. And then it says, and then let a couple guys stand up and go, he did this, he did this, and then just go kill him. <laughs> yeah, good. What a neat queen. So they have this feast, and he's like, oh, guys, you shouldn't have. I don't even know what's up. Thanks, guys. And someone's like, you did this, you did this. And let's kill him. And they kill him, and guess what? Now nobody owns the vineyard, and the king gets the vineyard. And he doesn't say he says anything about it. Oh, but. Oh, but. God does. He goes, you killed a guy for his field? The field was more important to you than a human life? Yeah, that's what happens when you got the wrong friends. Does that make sense? Now, all I have to say, this is what that's what we know about his mother-in-law. Is that fair? Because he married Jezebel's daughter, so that makes Jezebel's mother-in-law. Second Chronicles twenty-one one. Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers, was buried in the city of his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. That's consistent. This is what it says. He had these brothers. And you can be thankful I'm reading this. The sons of Jehoshaphat. This is Jehoram's brothers. Atariah, Yehiel, Zechariah, Atariahu, Michael, Shephatiah. All of these were the sons of Jehoshaphat's kings. These were all Jehoram's brothers. Their father, Jehoshaphat, gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things, which with fortified cities, hey buddy, hey son, have a city with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. 
That's the guy that we're talking about. That marries Jezebel's daughter. Now, when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all of his brothers with the sword and also all the other princes of Israel. So, in other words, he's like, hey, bros, come on over, special dinner. I, I, I killed all his brothers. And it tells us the reason he did this is because his wife encouraged him to do it. Where did she learn that from? Oh, yeah, mom. Mom knew how to kill people to get what she wanted. Hey, you know, those guys, you are the oldest, but let's face it, they could try to raise up. You've heard the story of Joseph. He was, you know, younger. Well, anyway. Now, when Yoram was established, this is what he did. Yoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem, as we see. He walked in the ways of the kings of, of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, because he had the daughter of Ahab as his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what Second Chronicles tells us. So when it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, killing all of your brothers is easily qualified as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Would you agree? Now, it's interesting, because don't you, don't you notice in this that it isn't that he married the daughter of Jezebel. But it says, though it is the daughter of Jezebel, he's married the daughter of Ahab. In other words, he held the man responsible just the same. That Ahab still could have been responsible to try to take this situation over as the man of the house. And God says, I'm still holding you accountable. The same way that he held Adam accountable. Not Adam, but Adam from Scripture. Mm -hmm. He holds the man accountable. Now, does that make sense? Now listen to this. Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, because the way of the wicked leads him astray. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God talks about the qualifications of a king. He should not uh, collect gold for himself, amass gold, or horses and chariots from Egypt. But there was one more thing he was not supposed to collect. Remember what it was? Wives. Foreign wives. Yeah, and it tells us why. It says, because, that issue of multiple wives, because they will turn your heart away from the living God. You start going after a bunch of women, you won't have space in your heart for God anymore. You'll have given it all away to everyone else. And what we read, I remind you, with Solomon was, Solomon, 1 Kings 11, verse 1, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations of the Lord, the God said, don't marry those girls. They'll turn your hearts away to serve after their gods. But he clung to these girls in love. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That guy's got a very bloated view of himself. And his wives turned away his heart. When God says, don't collect your wives, don't have a lot of them. I don't care what guy you are on earth. 700 is a lot to anyone's standards. It isn't like, well, you know, if I hit 800, that's a lot of women. But 700, that's, you know. And so I don't have any other wives because they're concubines. So I'm like conjugally responsible, but really I don't have to like go out in public with them, you know. And so I've got three. So I've got a thousand women that basically are kind of wearing my rings. That's not a lot, is it? And then you read Song of Solomon and you realize it still wasn't enough. But it did turn us hard away. Now, please hear me, because we'll we'll get into this last part of the text here. It's that because what we're going to see next is what's the result of this if this happens to you. But please hear me. God knows how weak our heart is and how impressionable we are more than we are. It's like, in our minds, we wear the cape and fly, but in God's eyes, we're Lois Lane. And that's kind of the problem there. And this is what's sad is, Atalia, the gal he does marry, will actually be the original gangster granny. You'll see it happen soon. But I want to tell you, her name literally means God holds back. And I think that's the point, is that if God were avoided in your life, you won't have anyone holding you back from being crazy. You'll have a conscience to some degree. What that is, the essence, that's the echo of the living God. But you run away from all of that, and it's like when you talk to people that continue to divulge themselves and ignore their consciences, why do you think we have laws? majority of the laws that are out there, I can't say all of them, some of them don't, I just, don't understand them. 
are to stop men from being more evil. They did a, uh, a survey of a, uh, a Cal Poly, which, by the way, is an upper echelon polytechnic school. So that's like engineers. These are like the world changers that will work for NASA and Boeing. And brilliant, brilliant people. And they're very well-bred. They're very, they're well-to-do for the most part. And they interviewed them. They asked them these questions. They were able to answer their questions anonymously. And one of the questions is, would you rape somebody if you knew that there would be no ramification for it? 94% of the people that responded said yes. And that wasn't just men. Crazy thing. And I'm like, the whole point of it is, even her name means God's holding her back. In other words, she could have been crazier than this. But God was holding her back. For what it's worth. Or, could it be that such parents as Ahab and that wife would name someone God is the one who holds you back? Think that through. Because some kids, that's what they think. Is well, all God is is the great party pooper. So what happens if you're in that place where you're being influenced by the wrong people? What would that start to look like? Well, let me show you what that looks like here in the remaining verses of the chapter. Because we have two very practical things in it. Verse 19 says, though, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah. Even though all of this stupid stuff is happening, the guy killed all of his brothers, and yet God would still not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, because he promised to give him a lamp for him and his sons forever. And I love this. Is that God's like, you know what? I'm not going to kill everyone because of this. But what I ask is, well, what really holds my heart? Where do I seek to make opportunity? What do I really dream of? And what makes my heart skip a beat to this day? Because something's going to hold my heart. Well, in these days now, that this king is being influenced by Jezebel's daughter, we have two results. Verse Verse 20. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Yoram... That's the king, I remind you. Went to Zaer and all of his chariots with him. And he rose at night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him with the captains and the chariots. And the troops fled their tents. And Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. Now, it's important to note that Edom did not have a king during the days of this guy's dad, Jehoshaphat. It tells me that, by the way, when it says in 1 Kings 22:47 during Jehoshaphat's reign, there was no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. But we do know that in the end of that time, do you remember when there was like Jehoshaphat actually decided to follow the king of Israel and they were going to try to get land back? Does that sound familiar? By the way, from Ben-Hadad, they scooped up the king of Edom, so there was a king by the end of Jehoshaphat's reign. But he was still under subjugation. In other words, he, by the way, provided the king with a great deal of meat. Thank you, king. And a great deal of wheat. Meat and wheat is what he gave the king. It was a place, in other words, it was something that had been an enemy or been in battle that you've conquered. But not anymore. And this is the reason why in its simplest sense. When there is a regime change, the kingdom is the most vulnerable. I remind you, the king was more than just a guy who wore a crown. He led the army into battle. So he was the chief commander for the army. So let's say you've been forced to pay taxes and now there's a new king and he doesn't look anything like his dad. His dad was godly and there was a strength that came with that godliness. But this guy on the other hand, he's not godly at all. He's, instead, he's killing his brothers. So with that, they're like, this is the time to test to see whether this guy's going to be able to lead the army or not. Does that make sense? So think of it this way. I hate to put it this way, but it only makes sense to me. <clears throat> Prince Charles takes the throne. And when Prince Charles takes the throne someday, although I do think a lot of people are just kind of praying it'll just kind of skip right over him and go right to Will and Kate. Everybody seems to love them. Um, but let's say Prince Charles takes the throne and, and, and what happens is at that point, Australia and New Zealand decide, we're out, we're not Commonwealth anymore. Canada's like, you're right, why in the world would we want to be a part of this? And they're out. And the reason I say that is, if there's any time to push that, it would be a time when there's a regime change. Does that make sense? So how does it play out in my life or in your life? Here's the problem. When you put something else in your life that is important, but has become more important than Jesus, there's a regime change in your heart. 
Jesus has been sitting on your throne. I have watched some of the godliest men that have inspired me and encouraged me and gone, God, that guy could be a friend because he's clearly influencing me in a good way. And I watch them just powerhouse for Christ. And they're sharing the Lord with everyone. And people are getting saved and all kinds of really cool things are happening. And then they meet this chick. And I'm not picking on girls. But they meet this girl that they should not be with. But, you know, like, let's be honest. She's not godly. She's not wise. She's not anything that Scripture calls. I mean, Proverbs 31 is like the opposite of her. But she looks cute. And so we lie to ourselves about the rest of the stuff. Well, she goes to church, or she's prayed before, or she wears a cross necklace, or whatever. We're going to put something in there to appease the part of the, that God is saying inside, you're not! And what happens is you watch this guy on fire for the Lord turn into a block of ice in front of you. And it drives me crazy because I watch it over and over, and I hear the lies, and they're the same lies every time, and they're... But they're, they say it in a way that they have to keep saying it to convince themselves. And no matter what you say, you're like, dude, this is not, this is a great ministry. You should hand this girl over to the sisters and let this girl grow in Christ. But she is, she is not, look at, when you find the right girl, I'm talking to you guys now, ladies, you should just know what I'm saying. Look at, when you find the right girl, the work decreases, but the product increases. You find the wrong one, it gets harder work and less comes out of it. Because in the end of it all, God calls her to be your helper. Ladies, be that kind of lady. But in it, what's happening here is a place that he had conquered now, now is actually going to break free and become a problem again. And this is what it looks like in my heart. Things that I had conquered a long time ago start rising up again when there's a regime chain in my heart. Because something else has influenced me in a way that I still think I'm keeping God relatively happy, but He's not my first love anymore. He's not the first thing in my heart. Something else is. Something else makes my heart skip a beat. And God's still cool. But this thing... My vows to Suzanne... 28 and a half years ago, I commit myself to the pursuit of the following. To love you as Christ loved me. To serve you as Christ served me. To accept you as Christ accepted me. To forgive you as Christ forgives me. To encourage you as Christ encourages me. And to hold our relationship above every other, second only to Jesus Christ by whom these things are possible. That is word for word. Our vows. From the beginning, one thing we knew is that if Jesus' relationship with our relationship with Jesus wasn't right, none of the other stuff was really possible. And it was the easy place to go, to arabesque onto the girl and put God in the backseat. You know what happens? Both of them swerve off into this head-on collision with life. And you know what happens? You don't notice it at first because you're still busy just going, check it out, I'm getting the best of all worlds. And then something weird starts happening. Something you think has been conquered in your life and has been rises up again. And you're like, how in the world am I struggling with this again? This hasn't been a problem for a while. And it doesn't have to be lust or stealing or, in my case, like violence or whatever. It can be, there are other places we go, like insecurity. That's a great one that hits us. And all of a sudden it's like, you just can't get past the fact that you just don't feel good enough anymore again. When you felt so loved not that long ago, and the irony is you felt so loved and now you fell in love, and now you don't feel loved anymore. Does that sound weird? It doesn't because you, you know it. In my case, it's like I may not be violent, but when something rises up again, I just lose grace with people. I just, I'm irritated by everything. Which, by the way, praise God that that happens because I hate being irritated. And I know, one of the reasons I hate being irritated, because I know if I'm in that place, something's not right and it needs to change. And God's kind of pushing the bruise, if that makes sense. But there's one more thing here, and I want to point it out, and we're almost done. But I'm talking real, right? This is for real. You know why? Because what the enemy sees is a regime change in our heart. 
the right king isn't there at the moment, though he belongs there. We've kind of just asked him to sit beside the chair. Put ourselves there, or we think we have, and putting something else there. And the enemy knows this is a really good time to attack with something that's already worked in the past. Edom was a perennial enemy. And they haven't been for quite a while. But now all of a sudden they are. And you know what's the saddest part about this to me? Is it ends, verse 22, that part with this. Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. What does that mean? It hasn't changed. The day that this is being written, 2 Kings 8, the repentance hasn't happened to make this happen. And you know what happens? It's like, dude, I'm just struggling and I'm struggling. And God says, hey, get me back on the throne. This is going to end. But it also says, and it's easy to miss at the end of verse 22, and Libna revolted at that time. And you go, oh, that does it for me. Libna revolted. Oh, my goodness. What's Libna? When Joshua helps conquer the land in the book of Joshua, God sets apart certain cities, and they're called cities of refuge. Perhaps you're familiar with them. They were places that if a man accidentally kills another man, or a woman, or how that works, he can flee to that city and be safe. Otherwise, he has to deal with Thor and with the Hulk. Well, it says it because it says, so he'll be safe from the Avenger. That's what it says. <laughs> you can make that decision yourself. So, this place of refuge was a place of peace and safety for you. Does that make sense? So what if, in our second case, this Libna, this place of peace, no longer holds peace for us? So you know what happens when there's a regime change? And this is one of the things I look for, by the way. And by the way, if you want to look up that, it's Joshua 21.13. When I think of places of refuge or places of peace, I think the church is one of them for me. I think my time in prayer, I think my time really worshiping and getting into genuine praise. And when the regime change happens, church now seems long and laborious. Prayer at best is swift and shallow. Worship, you get the tattoo. Oh, I used to love that song. That song used to make me cry. That song, I used to love that song. And then that's usually a telltale sign for me when I'm like, hey, look, you can play a song to death. I get that. But when it's like, why is this stuff affecting me like it used to? Because what you realize is playing the God walk show in rebellion just isn't fun. And the crazy part is, you're in rebellion and you don't even know it because you're kind of keeping God at bay. You're kind of keeping him in the wing when he should be on the show. And so you're like, well, technically he's still in the building. But he's standing at the door knocking kind of thing. And it's like, what's interesting is, in this text, this is what we got. There was this guy, he was not like his dad, Joseph, you want him? But instead, basically, this is all we know. According to this text, remember the Second Chronicles told us the other, is basically he was influenced by this stupid wife of his that was nasty and horrible because she was Jezebel's daughter and Ahab's daughter, by the way, as well. And that's what God holds him accountable to on this. And he says, as a, re as a result of that, this is, what, this is what emblemizes his life. Two things. Remember how we talked about other people, like he fell through a lattice, and that's basically the emblem of his life? Everything's wrapped up in these two things, and they're like, so this is his whole, this is his whole life. Is basically he's seeing red again because it means red. It's like basically what he happens is that thing that used to be conquered isn't conquered now, and that place that used to be safe and refuge isn't a place of refuge anymore. That's what he's known for. Would you want that known? Would you want your life known for that? And all that because in essence he opened his heart to the wrong person. Verse twenty-two. Now the rest of the acts of Yoram and all that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? By the way, we just read some of that chronicles, didn't we? So Yoram rested with his fathers and was buried in his fathers, uh, buried with his fathers in the city of David. Okay, last thing we'll bring this to close. Hopefully I haven't killed you. 
Because he has a son, and his son's name is Achatia, his son reigned in his place. Now that is Jehoshaphat's grandson. Does that make sense? Jehoshaphat, Yoram, Achatia. What do we know about him? In the twelfth year of Yoram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Achatia, the son of Yehoram, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned for a year. Yeah, that's it, in Jerusalem. His mother's name, remember that? That's Atalia. Who is the granddaughter of Omri, the king of Israel, which that is Ahab's dad. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab as well, and did evil in the sight of the Lord. But he didn't marry a girl for this. Well, why did he walk in the house of, of Ahab like them? Did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab? You know why? Because he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. You know why? Because his mom was Italia. And I remind you, boys, marry a girl you want daughters to be like. It's like, this guy didn't even marry it. This is just the product of someone else's dumb marriage, his mom and dad. But if dad had married another person, it would be a different story. And you're probably aware you get a lot of things from your mom's side, like your hair. I'm blaming my mom for that too, bro. That's like, but my mom, it's like, you get some things from my mom, but you know, it's like, I think, I'd like to think that my family gets my mom's shape. My mom was thin. I know what happened. Age. But it's like, there are things, and it's like, in the height, there's, there's certain things you get from both sides, but the bottom line, and it's like, understanding this, the legacy of compromise is now weighed in to a guy that, reminds you, this guy and this guy got an allegiance, so his son and their daughter got married, and now this guy's son, this is still his mom. That means that Ahab and Jezebel are grandma and grandpa to this guy. This guy still got in, he's still in deep. The question is, what in the heck is it going to take to fix this? It's going to take something drastic to fix this. Does that make sense? So this is how it ends. This. It says that, verse 28... He went with Yoram, the son of Achav, to war. This is, by the way, one of the things that will happen when you actually continue in this legacy is you'll fight other people's battles. You never would. You know what that means normally for us? Is you wind up making fun of someone else that's a Christian. It's usually what that looks like. You make fun of an evangelist that's out there shouting on a, on a street corner. You wouldn't shout. But the bottom line is they're still trying to evangelize. They are trying to serve the Lord and you're not. And you watch people, it's like, it's amazing how ruthless Christians, quote-unquote Christians, could be against other Christians because they don't like the way they do something. And you're going to fight someone else's war that you shouldn't have even gone and you should have never suited up for. So we went with Yoram, I remind you, that's this one of Ahab, remember Yoram and Yoram. Anyway. Uh, against Hathiel, the king of Syria, remember that guy? The crazy guy that's going to rip women apart? Abramot Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Yoram. Now King Yoram went back to Israel to recover from the wounds in which the Syrians had inflicted on him in Ramah. Now, that's Ahab's son. He fought against... The, uh, the guy got some wounds when he fought Hatiel, king of Syria. And Hatiel, the son of Yehoram, the king of Judah, went down to see Yoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. That's how this ends. Obviously, at this moment, things aren't good. You have. Just to close this up, and hopefully this will make it clear... The guy in Syria, the Syria, Israel, and Judah. Syria, that's Hatel. Remember, that's the guy that's going to be the maniac. He's fighting against Israel. Israel was Ahab. Ahab has a son named Yoram. He also has a daughter. His daughter's Talia. That married this guy, Yoram, that now has this son. So Jehoshaphat's grandson's ruling on this side. Ahab's son's ruling over here. This guy gets hurt. He gets hurt in the battle with, with Syria. And so he's going to have a rough spot. So this guy's injured. King of the north. Guy in the south, he's like, well, I better go check out. If you think about it, this is his uh, brother-in-law. Was oh, that right? Or uncle-in-law, however that works. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, I've confused myself. In the end of it all, what's the problem is, is both of these people are still together, and they shouldn't be. God doesn't say we need to be unified with everyone. The same way that he says we don't need to be friends with everyone, because you choose your friends carefully. Now, you can be friendly to people, because you want to influence them. But we're careful of who influences us. Make sense? Now, what we have now is, and here's the problem, and you go, well, this is so confusing. There's two Jehoshaphats, we haven't even gotten into that yet, and there's two Ahatias, and there's two Yehorams. What in the heck, who is who? I think God did that on purpose. And here's the point of that. 
when God's people get so intermingled with, the, with ungodly people, you can't tell one from the other. You're like, which one's which? So which Yehoram are we talking about now? Is this Yoram, Yehoram? Is this Ahatia or Ahatia? Is this Yehoshaphat? Is there another Yehoshaphat? How the, who names anyone Yehoshaphat? I mean, you kind of go, which one is this? And what side are we talking about? And, and that's the problem is you don't know whose side who's on anymore. And this is exactly what the church looks like when we're not careful. We're so busy trying not to stand out that you don't even know that we don't actually have a location to be anymore. So people, it's like, I just want you to go to church and not even know that you're in church. No, I want you to know you're in church. You're going to get hell everywhere else, hints of it. You might as well get hints of heaven here. This should be a place so different, it should be refuge. And when it's not, we're the problem here. And this is what I want to pray. So you know what it's going to take? One guy. A guy named Yahoo! Well, his name is J-E-H-U, and it literally means the Lord himself. Although, I wouldn't say the Lord himself. You know what he's going to do? He's going to go psycho. Oh, yeah, he's... It, you're going to have a lot of fun watching what happens, but it takes drastic. What does it take for you to get purged from all of that? God may have to wipe out life as you know it to pull you out of that nastiness. But you know what? It'll be the best thing that happened to you if that's the only way. But understand this. God does not use excessive force. He will not use a sledge when he can move you with a feather. And he will not scream if he can move you with a whisper. So when God has to raise his voice, the problem is not him. And I've had to learn that the hard way. I'm like, and there are times when I'm like, God, you've had to go through this much effort, this much force to change me. Forgive me for being so pig-headed. Now, as we bring this to close and pray, God wants God's people to be different than people who are not God's people so they could see the difference. And to be honest, so we could see the difference. When we tell them that Jesus died for our sins and rose again and makes us different people, they should intelligently look to see how we're different. And if we are not, if we're busy trying not to be different, we are harming the cause. Now, I'm not telling you go and wrap your head in aluminum foil and try to protect yourself from gamma rays. Or, I mean, I'm not asking you to be weird. I'm asking you to let the Lord do his work. The moment you said yes to him, he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit has been setting you apart from this world ever since. And you were going to be different. And we want to let people know there is a choice to make about receiving this Jesus. But when you receive that, you're going to be different too. And so as we go to prayer, what does God have to rip out of, out of us? Is there anything right now that is genuinely a good thing or not that we've just put in the wrong place? Or it's something we knew was bad from the get-go and we should never put it in any place? Can we pray the dangerous prayer tonight? God, rip that out. All right. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for couches, for a place where we can sit and study your word and get real talk. It's beautiful, Lord, and I want to thank you for what you're doing here. And we confess to you, Lord, that so much of what's called church is all about locking arms with the world instead of reaching a hand out to pull them out. But Lord, if we're immersing ourselves in the same, then I'm not exactly sure how it looks like we're trying to move them anywhere. And Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to see life beyond this world and that we can lay all of this aside and recognize the temporariness of the things we see around, around us. 
But I pray your forgiveness for where we have diluted our witness. Now I know, Lord, that you tell us to engage and to influence. But there's a big difference between engaging and influencing and befriending to the point of being influenced ourselves. And I just pray tonight for every one of us that what you need to rip out, rip out. What you need to reallocate to just the proper place, reallocate to the proper place so that we tonight could be in this place where we really are where we should be. Accepting, Lord, your proper place on the throne for you. That you would take that proper place Rule as King of our hearts. Not just Savior, but Lord. And then good things, Lord, that you've given us, be good things again. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you are a jealous God because you only love us and want us. And you're hungry and jealous for us. Forgive us for what we've given you put things in that could never compare but somehow become competition in our hearts. And now, bring us back to that place where we're single-hearted again to love you as we should. In Jesus' name.